0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Southeast Asia Tech Panel on Travel. We're having a free flow discussion about what we think about travel, the impact of pandemic, and the upside as well. I think one of the interesting things kind of upfront is travel has been a hot investment thesis, obviously, all around the world. And one of the things that we think about all the time is what are the various opportunities? How do we do things differently? How do you disrupt the incumbents? And so I think we can talk about those macros, but also it's been interesting to see how the pandemic of 2020 has really kind of like put a whole spin on things. So what do you think, Gwen and Dimitri, about travel fundamentals versus the pandemic?
1: Oh, wow. I
2: don't even know how to comment on something so sad. Well, let's just start with the obvious that as of March, OTAs in Southeast Asia, I think saw minus 90%, minus 95%, all of them. Internal travel started perking up a little bit from what I know in Malaysia in May, but then died again on the sequence of MCOs. There was a little bit of an attempt to get it going in Thailand and Indonesia with government money, but from what I understand, it hasn't become travel within country, give or take Jakarta-Bali route, and even that was squashed. So I ended up being really just quite a few staycations paid by various government budgets. And from what I know, Gwen's all-seeing eye at Facebook might know more. This is still status quo today. So people travel within cities, cross-country travel, give or take. Again, Indonesia, I think, is not alive as of yet. And that's pretty much it for the macro of travel.
3: Jeremy, do you mind kind of defining, when you talk about travel fundamentals, And, you know, Dimitri just gave a little bit of the the macros. What are you thinking in terms of travel fundamentals, like consumer, business, all around?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great definition, right? Traditionally, travel can be divided on the verticals between consumer spend, right, which is for leisure and commuting. And then we also see travel at the business level, which is on the B2B, which tends to be on your, you know, premium and other types of travel as well. Of course, we see the horizontals, right? Which is, I think you could look at it as country by country domestic, but also routes between different countries as well, as kind of like different horizontal segments of that. So I think that's how we could look at the market as well. And of course, I think there's a deeper layer of course of people tackling the travel industry at different levels, right? At the OTA level versus the portals versus, you know, a deeper, you know, B2B supporting travel agents and airlines approaches to tackling the tech travel industry?
3: One thing I do think this pandemic has brought is consumer awareness of the possibility of more domestic travel, you know, for all the staycations and an interest city or whatever, whichever country you're in, which I think it's a big thing, right? Because a lot of industries, you are driven by consumer demand. So if consumer demand, consumer behavior in travel it's a little bit more open-minded, again, so to speak. It's not always about traveling outside. I do think that can change a lot of the other variables around it.
0: Yeah, I think that's very true, which is that there has been a lot of domestic discovery. I think we see that in the US, travel has shifted. And I think Airbnb's latest S1 uh, report kind of like shows that as kind of like the growth story that they're seeing in the US and different markets. So definitely agree with you that I think we're seeing that not, haven't seen too much data around it. I don't know if you've seen some data around it, but at least colloquially, anecdotally, definitely hearing that people are traveling within the different markets. Of course, you know that varies by the size of the market, right? Like Singapore is so small. So I don't think there's a very obvious domestic travel dynamic, of course, besides the government subsidies. But I think that might be more obvious in like Thailand and Vietnam, where there's more of a city and you know kind of like tourist destination dynamic for rediscovery by locals.
3: Yeah. And I don't have the stats as well. Um, I don't know whether Dimitri uh, has, but you know, you always say when I go to, let's say Vietnam, right? And when I'm like, oh yeah, I want to do the, in the local tourist site, like the Coochie tunnels or something. For me, I still haven't done it yet, but my local friends would be like, oh wow, it's like literally just beside me, but I haven't done it. Right. It's the whole consumer travel has always been the exotic is way better. And so, again, this will be interesting for them to, it will be interesting to get the stats, actually, on that opening of mindset.
2: Indeed, it sounds like we should really, yeah, you're right, Jeremy and Gwen, there is quite a few segments and they all roll their different ways. So I would imagine uh, let's, first of all, split travel and hospitality separately because both things have a whole, whole bunch of things to say about them and within travel, so international travel, whether it's business and consumer, we can put aside for now, and the one across countries, but travel within countries. So it looks like there is a segment that is the regular business travel. People from Hanoi have to go to Ho Chi Minh for work and vice versa. And then there is this new segment that is trying to get stimulated by governments and local hotel groups, that is the local leisure travel. And I'm starting to see the emergence of just, not inter, but intracity travel. Like just basically people moving around town, getting themselves a staycation. I don't know if it qualifies as travel or just hospitality variation, if that makes sense. And I would not bash Singapore for being too small a market. Whatever hotels have opened, it seem to be booked for weeks ahead. Singapore Travel Authority really went to town on those subsidies by the books of it.
0: There's a lot of truth in that. We see that, you know, if we carve out, you know, the airlines and those that are, you know, in the business of moving people across borders, which we know has been defined shut effectively by governments based on the restrictions around stay home and quarantining efforts. But I think if you look at hospitality, I think we see that they have been Darwinian natural selection, have pushed themselves to evolve and adapt and really target the local domestic audience, like you said, so local staycation packages and things like that. And I think what's interesting is that anecdotally from these travel operators is that I think there's a point of view, which is that if they're able to survive this and have the recovery, they may actually have ended up building a much more ambidextrous business because traditionally, you know, in Southeast Asia, travel has primarily been seasonal based on American summer <laughs> vacations and holidays and the countervailing Australian summer vacations equivalent. And domestic is a way to backfill and get that in a more stable revenue point of view and stronger for those that actually to make it out through the other side.
2: And have you guys seen any evidence of those let's promote local travel initiatives actually working? I've been keeping an eye on Thailand. I think the funds that the government allocated for locals to use to to help them pay for the hotels and all, they haven't even been fully claimed. So deployment of the program is a bit slower than they thought. But I'm not sure if it's lack of demand or lack of efficiency. In Singapore, it seems to be working fine. In Malaysia, subsidies were stopped and MCO orders were slapped. I don't know how Vietnam and Indonesia are doing. Have you seen much?
0: I'll give a crack at it first, and I'd love to hear Gwen's point of view after this. I think for Vietnam, from what I've heard, is that for them, things have not changed, right? They've never gone through an internal control order. You know, Obviously, they don't have the inflow of tourists, especially from China, which has been a huge driver. So... I think what's been interesting is I don't think there's a way for domestic tourism to ever replace the huge amount of traffic they were seeing from China group travel as well as global travel. That being said, I think what's interesting is that we could look at tourism, but I think the way we're looking at it is there's a growth in experiences. Uh, So there's much more attuned to local taste, right? Whatever we define as millennials or the new generation of experiences that are a little bit more handcrafted.
2: Jeremy, I think another thing that I'm trying to track down, actually, as of now, is just some stats on the um, buses, ferries and trains and whether consumer passenger volumes have been dropping heavily and not dropping at all. It's kind of hard to extract from local governments.
0: The perfect person to talk about travel has joined Varan as well. What do you think about the state of travel these days in Southeast Asia? ranging from planes to more traditional routes like train and bus and car for rent?
1: You're saying across borders or within? I was actually asking within countries, cross borders, yeah, I know it's good to bad. Oh, yeah, so, I mean, within countries, really country-dependent. When I looked at the data, it's been mixed depending on the country. So, for example, in certain markets like, japan or australia to a certain extent uh, and u.s as well travel has rebounded like quite heavily like uh, for a lot of these guys it's been above pre-covid levels in countries where like india i think it has gone down but it really depends on the context so if you're talking about business travel obviously i think that has declined significantly leisure travel specifically it Depends on the type of customer. So if you look at like luxury travel that has rebounded like way past pre-COVID levels. So if you look at Taj, so Taj is like one of the top hotel chains in India, which is owned by the Tata Group, like five and six-star resorts. Their properties which are not in cities are being fully booked out. So it's really context-dependent, but leisure specifically and more on the medium to higher end of side of leisure travel is definitely past pre-COVID levels in a bunch of markets. China has fully rebounded. Uh, Japan, when I looked at the data, has rebounded. Australia, India, not as much. But again, the, the Indian luxury travel has rebounded. So it really depends.
2: And we were just chatting before you joined about some of the more less visible markets like Vietnam and Indonesia. Do you have any data on those?
1: Vietnam, no. For Indonesia, I looked at Traveloka. I think they are, I think, 50 or I might be getting the number wrong. I think they're 50 to 70% back to pre-COVID levels. I don't know whether that is leisure travel or business or blended. My guess is that it's blended. There's a lot of bump in like uh, local staycation, short travel so really vietnam philippines i have zero data on it i would rather have not looked into it the ones which i've looked at are the ones which i told like korea japan australia india i've looked at it china's fully packed i think china is overall number of travelers in the same part of last year i think is up like 25 percent, something like that so it, again yeah depends on the region
0: you know, you talk about the low end slash, you know, domestic, then you discuss like implicitly mainstream, and then you talk about luxury and business, right? So those seems to be like four different verticals, you know, strata, I guess, of travel. Do you see any patterns in that? Do you see like some things rebound faster? You're kind of implicitly saying like low end slash domestic cars rebound the first, obviously, but are you saying that, do you see any other patterns for the price segments?
1: Yes, the main one is that the luxury has been the first to rebound. And even throughout COVID, if you look at the numbers, I think luxury was relatively strong. Now, you can define luxury in many different ways. You have luxury in the sense where people are like they take their private jets and they go and like, you know, chill in like some random place. Right. So that is very, very high end luxury. So. I think the reason why you saw luxury travel rebound faster is because the luxury travel resorts are the ones taking better precautions, like COVID-specific precautions. I think that's one part. And I think the second part is that uh, people who can afford these type of that type of holiday are people who are able to travel in a way which they are kind of secluded from other people. That's the one which I've seen. The other thing is that the mid to high-end market, people have just more income to throw at holidays versus I think on the lower end of the spectrum, you have people who have been really affected job-wise by COVID. So that's another big factor where people who are you know doing your very, very low and cheap type of leisure holidays... I think a lot of them have been like either laid off or don't have jobs. The businesses have shut down or whatever, right? Versus on the mid to high end luxury, it's not happened. It's just not has. It's not impacted as much. That's what I've seen so far.
2: And while we're looking at various segments, can I try to see if another one exists? There was a little bit of intense coverage, I think, circa April May in the U.S. First. Oh, was it june around the trend of not extremely high level travelers just working professionals who tend to relocate from major cities to second and third tier cities taking advantage of lower cost of hotels and facilities to wait the pandemic out and be away from uh movement restriction orders and all that have we seen anything like that actually come to pass in southeast asia Jakarta's moving to bandung and some such
3: anecdotally yeah i've seen quite a several people move from Jakarta to Bali to wait it out because it's much cheaper
1: blah 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 What I've seen in India a lot of people have just gone back to their like home cities so like I live in Bangalore and the rentals have just dropped like so significantly because people have gone back to like if you're in Bangalore like you may be from like regional city right so those rents have dramatically dropped and that's because people have moved back to their own cities in terms of expats in india have all gone back so they're very very high-end rentals actually uh like the ones which are like your four to five k a month i know in singapore that's not as high is here in india it's very high if you're paying that much those have just dropped like there's zero demand for it so that's what i've seen so far but again like Gwen, it's very anecdotal rather than anything else
0: yeah, i think one way to think about it from the same bali's perspective is you first saw an outflow right of expatriates And digital nomads who, again, were headed back to where they had, from their perspective, more security in terms of the border closures, but also a better understanding of the healthcare system and also, you know, just like flight to safety, right? So it's kind of being close to family during lockdown, et cetera. And also, I think there's also some sense of friction between, you know, kind of like the digital nomad and the expat population versus like the domestic, you know, Bali, you know, citizenry, which was kind of expected in the pandemic, right? You know, you have concerns and fear of outsiders. And I think now the inflow, like you said, is within Indonesia of people moving. I don't think it's driven by domestic people, but I think it's also driven by how much they're able to work remotely or whether they lost their job and that's why they're moving back as well. Whereas I think in America the wage differential for is higher in some ways in terms of like maybe pure absolute numbers, USD, but also between like SF for example, which is what we hear in the news versus um, you know, somewhere out in the Midwest or the South of Florida, and then I think also in American companies have been very good at uh, pushing for remote work as well. Um, which so that's actually an interesting piece where even though people are moving back to their hometowns, they're also moving back with still their income, you know, security still high, right? And that's pushing up the price of homes uh, in these, um, you know, some segments like the top segments in tier two, tier three cities. There's actually a lot of competition for, and prices are heating up because SF engineers who are still getting paid remotely are looking for a house in New Hampshire, right? Uh, which didn't exist. So I think that's a little bit different in terms of the pattern of relocation domestically from the US versus, say, somewhere in uh, Indonesia where the person moving may be moving but may no longer have a job or may have, uh, not have remote work capabilities, for example
3: hey, welcome,
4: welcome. Give any thoughts on the topic? Hey, Gwen. Yeah, sorry, I, I just jumped in. Well, what's everyone talking about? Yeah,
3: the clubhouse, right? You just just talk whatever. related.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Chia, we were, you talking were just talking about rap music. Dimitri, had rap music. Dimitri, Dimitri was asking you, Jeng, if you could do a rap song about you know travel tech. That's the topic. <laughs> Great idea. So, Gwen, Dimitri and I just went, uh, so Chia, it's your turn now.
4: Uh huh. I'm sure that that completely happened. That completely like you literally took the most like Chinese-looking guy and tried to give him the rap. Like that's not happening, guys.
0: You can beat expectations. Gonna make you know Confucius proud though. So yeah, but yeah, I think we were just talking a little bit about whether you've seen in your groups like how re- domestic relocations for you know work purposes, uh, how that has shaped up, uh, because that has an impact on like local housing, obviously, for example, and accommodation. Sean, you, maybe you have a point of view on this as well. Maybe you have some friends who are traveling around the region.
4: You mean domestic relocation? or what do you mean? Yeah, about?
0: we're just talking about whether we're seeing a trend of people traveling and working remotely, for example, like relocating back to their home cities.
4: I think we did mention this briefly, maybe a long time ago, where it's just like remote hiring. like We're investing in founders who are executing remotely right and that previously would never really have happened is major red flag blah 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 but i think like everyone has become so accustomed to it that you have like maybe the founding team is not in the same country um and people are still ready to write checks maybe that's a mistake in the long run who knows but i know things like that that would have been an immediate pass has now gone to uh, this is completely okay we are, we're completely okay with this type of arrangement so I think that on the founder side happens a lot on the, on the employee side definitely happens right so you have a lot of startup companies where the like first few hires are like remote also and not even the same country and everyone's okay with that so that's been I think more of I guess what I see
3: adding to that a little bit and if this is not Southeast Asia specific but you know my uh, day job now is at Facebook right and big company asked me we don't allow for now automated work arrangements because of all the tech issues so Even if you're based in Singapore, you want to return to your home city. So this is uh, a non-domestic. So Jeremy, so like international relocation back to home city is not allowed, right? So there's the bigger question of kind of the the infrastructure of and willingness of the companies hiring obviously to allow that. So James' example of of startup founders, of course, that they're much more open and willing to kind of experiment in more remote working. Immediately, in my immediate kind of colleague circle, they want to, but it's difficult.
4: Wait, what's the reason why Facebook doesn't allow it? Can you share that?
3: Yeah, it's about taxes ultimately. Because if, let's say, you go back to, if you're working in Singapore, you're taxed under Singapore law, right? But if you go back to your home city, then it changes a lot of the payment structure. So it's a very HR issue, HR and tech issue.
4: Got it. Okay, okay, I think I saw something like this, like, you unfairly get taxed based on your hometown, and that creates a lot of, like, problems, right? But I'm sure this must be controversial.
3: I think it should make sense to try to go back to your home city, you know, internationally and stuff, but this is, a, this is a rule, essentially, for now at least. And people are just accepting it. Some people are doing it a bit on the side, not really telling people.
4: <laughs> yeah, I can easily imagine that. That makes sense.
0: It's interesting because, you know, we've started talking about travel, but it's kind of organically gone into the conversation of remote work, right? Which is that, you know, if you're allowed to remote work, then, you know, you're traveling all the time technically, right? Or that you uh, have a much more flexibility. And I think what's interesting is that if we do see the rise of remote work, and I think, of course, we're seeing it, but if that's really sustained and keeps going be the trend, I think we might see, like, the travel market may actually increase, right? Because people are much more flexible with travel. So, you know, I think the digital nomad lifestyle, you know, of like going to one country for a month at a time was like very, very on the fringes and not doable for most people unless you were like freelance engineer or someone doing contract and gig work. But it may actually be available to a lot more people doing supposedly more mainstream jobs, right? Like if you were at um is off the top of my head, a couple of the companies that announced like full remote work, uh, like GitHub and other places, then that lifestyle is like now totally available to you consistently.
3: And if we're talking a lot about kind of the second-order kind of consequences and effects, I mean, it's going to affect a lot of things, right? So family structure, you've been, you know, precisely if you can live a digital nomad lifestyle is more accessible, or maybe you rent a trailer, you literally drive around and work in from the desert one day and beach tomorrow and stuff like that, how would it change kind of the society, right? Because society typically is very grounded, you know, in, in the past, like villages, 150 maximum kind of thing, you know, whether it's where you pop out. And it's because you, all the social structure involved supporting a family to, to, to grow essentially. And so, with remote working, it changes, it really changes the structure, the fabric. Did I bring this too off topic? <laughs>
4: <laughs> no, I think it's interesting. It's allowed us to hire a bit more diversely than we would have otherwise been comfortable with, which I really much enjoy because you get to hire people that without necessarily having to meet them. I remember like, we have an associate sitting of India and there used to be a role where like, Everyone that came in through the firm had to have at least one face-to-face, and that included interns, which obviously wasn't an insane rule back in the past, but now would have clearly been insane. So I've had an associate working with us for like nine months, never met him face-to-face before. So I really appreciate the diversity of, of talent that you're able to hire. Impact on society, I think that's an interesting one. For me, it's mostly net positive. I think when, when travel bubbles open up and everything, like we'll, we'll still go back. I think a lot of this COVID impact is like relatively short term, right? So like the social impact is, is still gonna be like relatively short term in, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I think for me what's most interesting is once the vaccine comes out, like how much of it remains, right? What's interesting is that I think a segment or customer persona of the digital nomad. A digital nomad in the past was always considered to be like a scruffy <laughs> Non-Asian person with long hair and dreadlocks and kind of like, you know, work as they go, but not very high wallet size to go for, right? You know, so it'd be like hostels and backpacking and to some extent, co-working spaces uh, were starting to emerge. But I think one lasting impact at least would be like a customer persona, digital nomads who now professionals, right? You know, they have a business suit in their suitcase and they are being paid well, right? You know, because they're working for an American or European company and they're willing to spend at a not necessarily a luxury hotel, but a luxury accommodation or a premium house uh, and spend well as if they were living domestically, right? I think that's going to be buffing quite a few interesting uh, questions, right? You know, isn't we starting to see some emergence in that For the nomad industry of companies that are trying to be like, we have the same house experience in multiple cities, for example, the same global community. Uh, Interesting to see how mainstream that will get.
2: For what it's worth, a couple of pictures came our way, even though we don't really do real estate, from people who try to do developments, and that's even before COVID, in Phuket and Bali, where uh, all micro-complexes being built, villas and the kind of a semblance of an open-plan office, under the palms uh, for subsidiaries of Chinese, Russian, Belarusian companies that just put 30, 40, 50 people on the ground somewhere in the middle of nowhere in Thailand or Indonesia permanently. So remote compounds for digital companies. And I've been hearing rumors of a couple of villas being developed specifically for live streaming influencers, a little bit like the LA stuff. I guess that gets accelerated by COVID shoot at least.
4: Yeah. Actually, Gwen, I'd be super curious to, to get a thoughts on I Questions about virtual conferencing. Do you think it'll still exist in a big way, like, post-COVID?
3: When you say that, meaning, like, all the physical conferences, like, the Asia ones, all have gone online, is, is that the kind of conference you're thinking about?
4: Yeah, so my personal bias is, like, I passed on one of the formal virtual conferencing companies as an angel, COVID, and so I'm really, really bitter about passing on that, so I'm trying to find data points that suggest that, Actually, that was a genius move. So far, I haven't found any. But yes, that's why.
3: <laughs> uh, uh, to the question, I have a few thoughts. So I think the experience would differ from both the speakers and the consumer perspective. So for me, I think as a consumer, there is a lot of links to having global access conferences, right? Time zone apart. I mean, if you want, you can stay up at 2 a.m. if you want. Slash is recorded, right? and it's much more so, so it's a few things it's much more normal now to watch a, a Zoom interview that's one number two you can literally rock up in your pajamas so it's easy much more easily accessible but three you have global access to content if you know about that if you know about a conference happening you definitely can sign up pay for a ticket and sign up again then barring the times of conferences for consumers but in the, the attendee I think it makes a lot of sense so with that Expands the, the ticket pool size, right, of a conference um organizer. Your your audience now is quote unquote a bit more global. Maybe plus minus, five hours time difference, time zone differences. If you want to talk about live Q and A, on speaker side, this is where I think it's not so clear cut. Like myself, I rejected speaking at a few stuff because I'm like, topic is fairly to say but not super interesting or the not super not as interesting as, as enough for me to actually want to say yes to speak. Because for me speaking a conference is really about hanging out with fellow speakers and, you know, chilling out before after conference, right? So I think for global conferences, uh, from a networking perspective and uh, hang out with uh, speaker's perspective, I, all of you, I'm sure you're invited to speak, and you've been speaking also over the pandemic, right? So what I, I'll be curious as to your thoughts. For me, on that front, I am less inclined to actually speak at, at virtual conferences.
4: Okay, that's interesting because for views like, Coming from the point of view, so like, for Fintech Festival, right? Like, it's gotten, I think, better speakers than it's ever gotten before. Like, it's really amazing uh, that they're showing up, right? That would probably have been a bit difficult to get all of these guys in the room. My challenge, and also the reason why I passed on that investment, was like, all of people go to conferences to, like, have that photo taken with themselves, right? Like, shaking hands with, like, a Nobel Peace whatever, or, or look like they're receiving wisdom, just to say that they've met that person once, or maybe like try to pitch something for 10 seconds. You know, can't really do that on Zoom. You don't have the same like intimacy and, and proximity. Um, like, oh the fundamental reason to do that. I don't believe that people go to conferences for the content. I, that's where I'm coming from. So it's interesting you're sharing the speaker side, but I wonder if you, you, you would agree on the attendee side also.
3: Well, the attendee side, I can see your point, because I don't belong in that segment of meeting a photo op. <laughs> so so I don't feel that, but yeah, yeah, I, I do agree with you. A lot of people do want that. And attendees side, okay, yeah, content, I always agree, is the least of the um, priorities. It's always about meeting people, right? So ultimately, so, but so I'll separate the two. I still think global access to content is quite valuable. That's one. Second, on the physical part, photo ops, you know, quote-unquote, saying that you met someone for one time, yeah... I don't know how much it will really impact. So I think if this is the case, then this will become less important because it's literally out of the... It's like, move, it can't happen. Unless you fly like, you know, 13 hours to, I don't know, wherever, somewhere, to Iceland or something to meet a speaker. But that's the
4: clubhouse. I would even go so far as to say, but this is the clubhouse thesis, right? Which is that it's about peer-to-peer interactability, interaction, um. no matter who the speakers are, right? Like, for example, Singapore FinTech Festival, would it be awesome to listen to the Nobel laureate who's speaking at Singapore FinTech Festival? Yeah, kind of. Do I think I'll learn anything? Not really. But w- if I was offered the chance to meet this person, would I definitely take it? Like, yeah, I don't know what I'd say to him, but yeah, I'd love to meet the person. And that's kind of what Clubhouse is supposed to be offering, right? Like, the chance to speak to Mark Andreessen, um on a topic as long as you have something intelligent to say and that's supposed to be the same value prop of a conference which is like the chance if you have something smart to say that to that person directly and the job to be done there is because like you want to be able to somehow build a connection to that person. But then that job to be done can be fulfilled on a virtual conference. Right? So that's kind of where I'm I'm, I'm struggling
3: a little yeah, bit. I, I, yeah I I like that right so so I think I, I do, okay. so I think back to your original question whether this virtual conferences whether my opinion or whether it continues exists, I think yes. I do think the form factor is just another product. Physical conferences will exist, so will virtual conferences, and my opinion is that virtual conferences will continue to exist and grow even more. So then second, to your point about the value-add in terms of precisely like the clubhouse model, connecting with, with someone really far away or someone quote-unquote famous, having that direct relationship now, you and I exchanging words, yes, I agree. The current conferences, for now at least the ones I've, I've been a part of, um, I don't have that. The tools are not yet matching to the experience. Right, So the clubhouse kind of like direct interaction model is not really there yet. Sure, if I watch you right, give a talk, I could ask you a question in the live chat and Zoom, or I could unmute myself if they allow me to unmute myself to ask you. But it's still very different. Right? It's not a conversation at a bar that we could be having. It's still very one-to-many, if anything. Yeah. So, but I think that will change. So if that changes, if they incorporate in more of the clubhouse-like thing, I like that. I do agree that will give it much more... Um...
0: So I think the crux of it, Jane, is that you're right to say that when we talk about the explicit goal of conferences, it's not necessarily hear people speak, but it's the controlled serendipity of the attendees and those conversations you get to have. And you're right to say that virtual conferences today don't have that yet because they're so new on average. But I would say like, I think it's only a function of tools. And I do agree with Gwen that it's only a matter of time that organizers are listening to the feedback of the attendees and saying, okay, all right, we got to either buy a new feature. And I think we've seen some interesting tools that let people do that thing. And that's going to kill, to some extent, the travel for conference type of travel. But I think I will also say is that I think at the end of the day, we're going to land up on is I think every physical conference is now going to have a much stronger virtual dial-in basis and they'll probably tear it down one level. So like in-person would be like $1,000, right? And then and it will include the remote for you to dial-in. And then there's a remote only, which is going to be $100, but they can sell like 10x of those, Right. So I think that's going to happen that, I think it, the answer is not gonna be one or the other, I think is that all physical conferences will pretty much have a remote component generally, unless it's super exclusive or private or confidential. And then I think the second thing that's there is, I think there will continue to be virtual only conferences. I think if we were to look at very niche interests, right, that are not sustainable at a physical, you know, I mean, in order for a virtual conference to happen it's basically like, In the next one year or half a year, the people who can turn up at this conference must be in the same country, have the same time availability to be there in person, um, and must care about a topic, right? And that's three pretty large jumps in order for that conference to happen. So that's why you see the Singapore FinTech Festival, which equivalent is like Southeast Asia, right? So FinTech is a large topic. Southeast Asia is a relatively large geo. Singapore is a hub. But I think we're going to see a lot of niching down of... Interest, and I think one way to think about it of course is like instead of looking at it, like Singapore FinTech Festival is Bali FinTech Festival, I don't think it's really going to be geography. I think it's really going to be topics, and I think these virtual conferences are going to be huge. So you know you could imagine like a global Left for Dead two, you know like a Left for Dead one, right? It's an old outdated game, but there's quite a passionate fan base for that. Um, that could hang out. I'm seeing a lot of like weight loss or fitness communities who are you know very like very unhealthy and very uncool to be a conference full of unfit people, right? But they're gathering online on virtual communities as well.
3: Jay, no formal regarding that Miss Angel investment, man. Look forward, look forward.
4: <laughs> yeah, I actually want to dive on something you said, because you said, I like the way you, you phrased it, right? Like one to many versus spontaneous, right? But that's a good phrasing because like that's actually, I think, how conferences are like, right? Like most interactions in the world especially if your debt level are highly optimized. And what that means is that you know you have your secretaries pre-screening everyone and making sure that that you know you're you're optimizing on your time every fifteen minutes, thirty minutes, blah, blah blah. And then here's a the conference setting where uh, to some extent, the interaction can't be pre-screened. like you have a group of people that line up, they want to talk to you and take a photo, whatever. and you can't really screen that, right? You just trust that, okay, the conference ticket was, a thousand bucks so like no randos can come in but in fact actually a bunch of randos come in anyway and the lack of screening is part of the value to the attendee right because like oh this is my opportunity to reach out to this guy like no one no one really attend a conference of people that they meet for coffee every day right so the challenge here is that i don't think it's a tool thing because if you believe that it's a screening and lack of optimization that provides a spontaneity Then the mere fact right now with a lot of Zoom conferences, like organizers are explicitly trying to screen and optimize for the time, especially because now the barrier to entry is basically zero, right? So like it's an incentive issue, I think, when it comes to like virtual conferences versus physical conferences. Did that make sense?
0: I think you're just describing something that's happening today because people are grappling with the tools, but this is exactly the same issue that Facebook had, right, with the feed, right, and moving towards an invite-only to an algorithmic feed, right? So my prediction, and i put 50 bucks on this, is that we're going to see conference guests, attendees, which used to be listed alphabetically, right, <laughs> at best, right, with some tags, blah, blah, blah. They're going to become database searchable format so that people can sort better. But more importantly, I think there's going to be feature where they move towards an algorithmic sorting of that kind of serendipity right which is that instead of like you going to get donuts <laughs> at the line and you bumping into someone or and then saying no to that person and then moving on to another person there who is actually somewhat relevant i think we're going to see algorithms do that for us at, for that slice of the conference and travel dynamic for guests and attendees talking
4: Okay, but that's where I have an issue, right? Because I definitely agree that that's how you would replicate the physical setting. But the problem is that that's not what the speakers want, right? It's the same issue that Lunch Club faced, right? Which is like, in the beginning when you can ensure only high-quality invites, you can build serendipity around that. But at scale that doesn't work because you just simply can't filter. And then at that point, no one goes, let me randomly sign up for people with zero guarantee on the quality control, right? Like it's always that promise of quality control that allows people to do it. But then when you're physically there, you can't like run away from someone. I mean, you can, but you'd be very rude and that will come across. So like that's the difference, right? And then the problem is that the platform itself, which is a conference organizer, is incentivized to come across as having high-quality screening, right? Because, you know, otherwise, like, it would have wasted the guy's time. So, like, that's why I call it an incentive issue. I
3: like that, Zhang. Putting, putting ourselves back to physical conferences, right? With all you speakers, where do you hang out? I ask this because I would mostly hang out on the speakers, last.
4: Where do I hang out? I mostly hang out at home because like, no one invites me. To
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, um, Yeah, I mean, so what's been interesting for me is that you know I do some speaking as well. And I definitely like hanging out at a speaker's uh, forum. But this year, I think you're right to say that it's interesting because I get to continue speaking at forums of my affiliation, in a sense. So I got to speak, for example, remotely this year. I got to speak at... The Deutsche Bank, kind of like the APEC club. So they were asking me to speak about that, which technically is New York. I uh, I was speaking in Singapore, but I still got to speak. And I enjoyed and got actually quite a few good connections there. I also spoke at the Boston Startup Festival as well. So I was talking there as well. And I think also, I think from the panel organizer's perspective, it also makes it easier for you know diversity and inclusion purposes, D&I. Uh, I think it's, you know, a lot of people don't have access to be able to be speak based on timing or geography or whatever it is. So I think it also helps organizers with their uh, diversity inclusion efforts as well to get speakers, yeah.
3: Jack, to go back to your, your point about incentives, right? I think that's a great one. Linking that with the filtering and stuff like that, um, I don't know, I, 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 I see where you're coming from. And to bring back your other previous point about how the FinTech Festival this time has like many more speakers, yeah, because it's easier to now speak globally and to access, right? Um I'm sorry, this is not this is not a coherent kind of point, but I wanted to say that I, I see you. I don't have uh, clearly thought out points regarding that
4: at the moment. Got it. Well the other alternative is uh that's the wrong way to look at it and just look at how much money is flowing into corporate into conferences and just invest accordingly, which is basically the lesson I learned.
3: Which has to be, right? I mean, like traditionally, all of us know that conferences take a while to actually make money. They need the first two years to spend a lot of money, outflow first, negative, in the red, and only they start making that in the third year, right? So that's why I think for the pure monetary perspective, this is model wise, this will definitely continue. And they will not be screening as much. Which means if someone's willing to pay 500, even the person to rando, that Randall person has 500 to pay for this again, right? So, So I think for now, the medium term, I think, will be that. It's just really
4: an expansion of audience. I think that would be the priority. I'll index I'll that on that first. Yeah, so that was my conclusion, which is like you can have a business model that long-term ruins the quality of the... In- like I'm being a bit un, un, uh, ungenerous, but like long-term ruins the quality of the industry, but still can make a lot of money. So that was my learning.
3: That's probably...
0: <laughs> I mean, I would debate that, right? Which is if... I don't think it would ruin the industry, right? It's just people have a chance to opt in and vote with their feet, right? So, yeah, I mean, in the short term, I mean, actually, if, you, if you're if you willing to pay 500 bucks or 1000 bucks to get in, you probably are going to be of value to the industry, to that event and conference, right? That's number one. Otherwise, there's no value. You want more $1,000 ticket holders globally rather than more thousand five hundred and one hundred physically in the same place right um, so that's one and then but, two organizers to... still have the underlying incentive to keep it going so they're always acting on feedback I don't think it's I, I basically I think the underlying incentive of getting feedback trying to drive up audience and you know NPS from their perspective is still going to go through as a cycle
4: but the reality with like all these conferences is that they're making a lot of money from corporates and, and people who are buying tickets in bulk and um, and then giving it away, right? Like so, so like the whole idea of oh, they're like you said, a high ticket price means everyone who comes is like it's like high quality is not really true. It's like they're distributing free tickets to 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 Goldman, and Goldman has like twenty tickets to give away for free, and then like random people like show show up. Um, so I, I I I know there's a correlation between ticket price and quality, but like the the relation there's also like a bit more nuance.
0: Dimitri, anything you want to add to close this out before I wrap this panel?
2: Not on conferences anyway.
0: (laughs) Awesome. So thank you so much, everybody. I think that pretty much wraps our panel today. And uh, see you guys all at the same time next week.